Further instability has rocked the vibranium-rich African kingdom of Wakanda this week. King Chalo's palace has been destroyed, and he is reported to have appointed the American intelligence agent Everett Ross the acting regent of the nation. It is, as yet, unknown how these developments will affect Latveria's diplomatic relationship with Wakanda. The American agitators known as the Avengers are reported to be facing internal instability, following calls for a more racially balanced lineup. And a bit of disappointing news. Following several years when it appeared that the curse of vampirism had gone the way of smallpox and rinderpest, it's now confirmed that there are once again vampires stalking the night. Make sure to stock up on garlic and holy water. This is Gustav Croft for the VOL. Zero, zero, 007. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero, zero, 007. Here in Latveria, we get news from all over the world. The news may be good or bad, but we will always tell you the truth as Lord Doom sees it. And now, our weekly feature on the history of our world's greatest hero, Victor Von Doom, with your host Douglas Woe, by special arrangement with Universe 1218. Thank you, Doombot PB12. Before we get started this week, I should explain why we've been jumping around between comics published in the early 60s, then 1976 and 1998, then 1963 again, and today 1999. The way this podcast is organized has an actual plan behind it. We're talking about every comic book in which Doctor Doom appears for more than a panel or two, but we're not talking about them in publication order or even the order in which they occur in Marvel Comics continuity. We're talking about them in the order in which Victor Von Doom experienced their events. What's the difference between that and continuity order, you may well ask? Well, Dr. Doom has a time machine. That makes a big difference. So today I'm talking about Avengers number 1.5 from 1999 with Katie Pride. Katie's the owner of my favorite comic book store, Books with Pictures, here in Portland, Oregon. She's also been a history of science grad student, a technology consultant, a bike activist, and a magazine editor, and she's one of those people who just kind of knows a whole lot about everything. Welcome, Katie. It's lovely to be here. We are talking today about Avengers number one and a half from December 1999. Now, Avengers number one had had a cover date of September 1963, and Avengers number two had a cover date of November. And so number one and a half is the issue, ostensibly, that would have come out had there been an issue of Avengers that October. It's written by Roger Stern. The credit says filling in for Stan Lee. Drawn by Bruce Timm. The credit says filling in for Jack Kirby and so forth. The Death Trap of Doctor Doom. And is this a young Walter Cronkite there? I don't know who else it would be. But he pops in to give us a little news notice about the formation of the Avengers and the filing of their charter. Yes, because they have a charter by the time we see them in Avengers number two. So there's a, a little bit of background on their fight with Loki. We see a cutaway scene of the Fantastic Four being very Fantastic four and complaining about the Avengers. We see uh, Spider-Man, who at this point had recently fought uh, Doctor Doom, as we heard a week or so ago. And... At last, we see a suitably black-and-white, old-fashioned aspect ratio kind of screen being destroyed by none other than Victor Von Doom, complaining about uh, how many, quote, superheroes are popping up. He says, These Avengers must be dealt with before they can become a problem. 
Yes, they must feel the power of Doctor Doom. So this is a sort of deterrent strategy. He sees the the coming of superheroes to his world and and thinks that that seems. I mean, you know, extrajudiciary justice is definitely worrisome. One interesting thing about this is. Uh, in the stories that we've covered so far on the show, there has been no mention of Latveria. And there is, once again, no mention of Latveria anywhere in the story. No, carefully avoided. Carefully avoided. Sometimes kind of written around, but at this point, Doom is just a guy with a metal mask. Well, a guy with a metal mask who has plans for revenge and for conquest. Mm. Which is fabulously, like, it's a villainous thing to say. Yeah, plans for yeah. revenge and yeah. plans for conquest seem villainous, but but they're very unspecific. Yeah, they, they, they really are. Uh, so there's a bit more nabbing around uh, Avengers Mansion, which Bruce Tim draws an absolutely fabulous Hulk. He is squat, he is Kirby-ish, he's got those kind of jagged Kirby ink lines all over him that Jack Kirby didn't really have in his work at this point, but, you know, there's a little bit of late Kirby seeping into the style here. I'm not going to complain when it looks this good. Boy, does this Hulk look grouchy. Mm-hmm. He's really unhappy about... Well, everything. Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, which is a shame because he's getting put up in Stark Mansion and it's very fancy and Jarvis is doing his very best to take care of them all. Yeah, and, and it's just not bouncing off of grumpy, young, short-haired Hulk. At, at this point, a military man comes in and explains that there's a problem with, quote, the infamous international terrorist Dr. Doom. The infamous international terrorist, Dr. Doom. I guess I shouldn't mention that Military Man and Walter Cronkite are definitely the same uh, drawing. They, they, they do look very similar, but yes. Now, he's a head of state, but we don't know that yet. Doctor Doom is a head of state, but but we don't know this yet. In this book, head of Doctor Doom is not clearly a head of state. Well, he's an infamous international terrorist. We haven't really seen him do anything all that bad so far. This has been a theme of our episode so far. We've seen him, you know, destroy the odd vase. We have seen him briefly hijack a building into space. And he's engaged in the spot of kidnapping, but. Not really anything that would justify him being called an infamous international terrorist. But he's described here as being cold, ruthless, and diabolical. Mm. Well, those are definitely some villain words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is all to a flashback. Having assembled an army. Yeah. Um, Flashback to Fantastic Four and Ant-Man having fought him in Fantastic Four 16 and 17. And at last there's a mention of his wonderful big kind of bullet-shaped airship that we saw in that Fantastic Four story, at which point the story is interrupted for an ad for a Kid Cold Outlaw number 112 and a half. No such comic ever existed. Night of the Red Wolf. It is well and truly time for the plot to get underway. Doom's airship is suddenly taken out of the military storage where it's been, and the Avengers are dispatched to deal with it. I want to give appreciation to the sound effects on this page, which include ver, whoosh, thaka 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 thaka, and pakao. Excellent sound effecting. Uh, they're very good. The Avengers are on the trail of this, and finally we get a beautiful later Kirby-style giant full-page panel of this mammoth, mammoth pink airship. That It's huge. It's huge. It's imposing. It takes up a whole bunch of real estate, and... 
Bruce Tim is doing his very, very best Kirby impression on the next page as Thor and the Hulk go into dramatically foreshortened action in four equally sized rectangular panels. It just looks like pure 1968 Kirby damn the torpedoes. It is a love story. It is so good. There's some real affection going on there. So the Avengers get on board the airship and then bad things start happening to them. Now, these are bad things that we have seen Doom do to other characters before, like gassing them with sleeping gas, which is what happens to the Wasp, or falling on something really slippery, which the Hulk identifies as Teflon. Was there Teflon in 1963? There been, right? was Teflon in 1963. It was not in widespread commercial use, and uh, clearly it was uh, unusual enough that it could be a supervillain MacGuffin. That's fantastic. Yes. Uh, when when was Teflon introduced? Do you happen to know? Teflon was discovered in 1938 by a scientist working on gases related to refrigerants and uh, found that a sample had spontaneously polymerized into a white waxy solid that was also very slick and inert to all chemicals he tried to use on it. It was introduced to the market in 1946. An improved version of it was introduced in 1960, and a still later improved version of it was introduced in 1970, but all of those were introduced as a material called Teflon. That rules. There you go. But there's a a combination of Teflon and high-pressure air jets are what managed to take care of the Hulk. Thor is attacked by black heat-seeking power spheres that we saw Doom using in an earlier story where he was using them to try to send the Fantastic Four to another dimension from which they could never return. And Iron Man gets attacked by a robot that saps his power. Ant-Man is now running around at normal human size because he can cover ground faster that way. This is a thing that writers of early Ant-Man stories never really thought about. It would take Ant-Man a really long time to get from point A to point B, even if he was flying on the back of a flying ant, as he often was in those stories. Even then, ants don't move super fast. They definitely don't move fast as a running, grown human man. And we discover that the military man who encountered the Avengers earlier in the story and told them to go after Doom was, in fact, Doom himself with a mask of his face over the metal mask. It's real bad. I mean, I've got to say, the capabilities of rubber masks in the 1960s were definitely not at this standard. So that's, you know, that's a little iffy to me. But I do want to note that if this were the October issue, it would be a Halloween issue. And so emphasizing the use of rubber masks and secret identities seems very appropriate to a Halloween issue. Fair enough, fair enough. Doom explains... All has gone exactly as I planned. Individually, you Avengers have all garnered great reputations as, what is the term again? Ah, yes, superheroes. With quotes around them. It's a new term. Explains that he's been using a divide-and-conquer strategy against them. And we see some cutaways of their various functioning death traps. Thor is in the middle of being transported to another dimension and so forth. Everyone assumes they're done for. But Ant-Man has a plan. He's a pill popper. He pops his favorite pill. It's his favorite new pill. It's the pill that turns him into Giant Man. Giant Man. So my understanding of Ant-Man's powers doesn't involve pills? He's used pills. He's used gases. 
There's stuff that you inhale, there's stuff that you swallow. We haven't really seen him use any injectables, but, <laughs> you know, Hank Pym has some issues, and if he can turn his issues into superpowers, that's what he does. All right, but now we have the introduction of Giant Man and the early Marvel universes. All the worse for it, but here he is. Well, he, it's it's explained that uh, he has become Giant Man in Tales to Astonish number 49, which is the issue of Tales to Astonish that came out the month that Avengers one and a half would have been published had it existed then. Mm -hmm. And when he shows up again in Avengers number two, he's Giant Man now. And everyone's like, oh, it's Giant Man. So this is him making the transition. And then Giant Giant Man grabs Itty Bitty Hulk. And uh, they go off to rescue Thor, who is now fading away into insubstantial Asgardian mist. So I love this panel because I love how it shows uh, just Thor swinging wildly yeah. as he fades away into insubstantial mist. Just the idea of poor Thor stuck there swinging wildly at these spheres is, is very good. But of course he manages to overcome them with early Marvel hand-waving because uh, Mjolnir, his hammer, can transcend time and space. He waves the hammer around some more and recharges Iron Man's armor. He waves it around some more and uh, smashes into Doom's control room. And then Doom just whaps the hammer away, backhands it. Splack. Thor explains, Zound, none but the radioactive man has air deflected Mjolnir. Can I complain for a moment about Thor, who is an Asgardian god, a Norse god, using the word Zounds, which is a specifically Christian oath. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's God's wounds. It's yes. Mm-hmm. 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 It's just not a swear that, that Thor would swear. It's just really not. Mm-mm. Yeah. Nope. Fortunately, to distract us, uh, Dr. Doom gets off a very good ba. I am a connoisseur of early Marvel ba's. My son and I both, uh, we have a blog called Marvel Ba. It's at marvelba.blogspot.com. We just document anytime any character in any Marvel comic says ba. Which Marvel comic character says ba the most? Doom is a very strong candidate for the greatest number of Ba's. Early Hulk also has a lot of Ba. Interesting. And per word, on a per word basis, it is probably the Mole Man. Is it only because the Mole Man does not have a lot of words altogether? I mean, he does tend to monologue. He does tend to monologue, and he does tend to express Ba-type ideas a lot. Right. Yeah. So Doom is about to make a getaway through a convenient hatch in the uh, bottom of his beautiful large aircraft. The Hulk goes after him. They fight. Doom zaps the Hulk, which just makes him really mad. And once again, Bruce Tim batting it out of the park here. Yeah. Wonderful close-up of the Hulk. It looks just like Jack Kirby panel from six or seven years later. Extreme close-up of the Hulk's face. Mouth open. Canted angle. Everything. Furious. He rips off... Doom's head, and it's a Doom bot, of course. It is the only joke in the issue that actually made me laugh out loud, which is the moment where Iron Man says, Phew, for a second, I thought, how'd you know that was a robot? And Hulk replies, Robot? Yeah. And, of course, the, uh, the ship is about to blow up. They quarrel about who's going to get away. The Hulk isn't having any of it, sticks our military friend in the ejection pod, pushes him out, and then tells Ant-Man to shrink down again, and the Wasp to shrink down again, so they can both get away on Thor's shoulders. The airship blows up. Doom has once again gotten away. Doom will soon not have to get away anymore, 
because we will know that he has diplomatic immunity and can just walk away from things. But we're still at the point where he has to make a getaway. The airship uh, goes down into the gulfs of Long Island. It's explained that the Wasp was the person who actually came up with the strategy that saved them all. And at the end, they stand around heroically, wondering, as Thor says, given his skills with robotics, I wonder, did we ever face the true Doctor Doom at all? And did we ever face the true Doctor Doom at all? No. Of course we, we freaking didn't face did the not true face the But he is here, miles away, yes. although miles away, uh, if it's, you know, New Jersey, or miles away, if it's Latveria, is not said. A lone grim figure watches the Avengers every move with grudging respect. You may never know, Asgardian. You may never know. Well, I assume that if it's miles away, it has to be uh, the castle we saw him go to in his very first appearance. Because it's a quick helicopter flight away from New York City. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. It's a summer castle. Yes. And finally for this issue, we have letters from Ty Templeton, age six, Kirk Busick, age two, Bert Cusick, who happens to have the same address, and uh, a very young Mark Wade, who all have very strong opinions about what sort of story should be in. They sure do. All of these, of course, being notable as later in life letter writers to the Marvel letters columns, as well as Marvel creators. That's true. Not at age two, though. Not at age two. Well, I wouldn't put it past Kirk Busick to have been able to write a letter to age two. And I believe he has actually talked about the story of how, when he was two years old, his father got him... Avengers number one, and he was very upset because he couldn't find Batman anywhere in it. Which is the gist of this letter. Yeah, it was supposed to be all the world's greatest superheroes, and there's no Batman, and what even? Fair. Totally fair. This was not the earliest continuity insert that Marvel did. Okay. There have been things like Untold Tales of Spider-Man, written by Kirk Busiek a few years earlier, but it is a particularly lovely one just because it's so much in the style of the period. It's half parodying, half pastiching. So I'm a little bit baffled by it. Okay. It seems to me that the purpose of doing a continuity insert is to go in and fix, change, tweak, fiddle with the continuity in some way, which as far as I can tell, this issue doesn't. I don't think it does. Yeah. Um, uh, it seems like it's entirely because Roger Stern and Bruce Tim wanted to do a Jack and Stan tribute, and so they did. I think that's the purpose of it, to uh, do a Jack and Stan tribute that could have been a Jack and Stan comic that is set at a particular moment that fits into the Jack Kirby Stan Lee story, as it is. It doesn't really adjust anything much. Uh, it has enough contextual cues that people who have read way too much of these early Marvel comics, like me, know exactly where it fits. And it also kind of stands on its own as a fun, cute, retro little story. Mm-hmm. An excuse for Bruce Tim to draw very, very good Kirby pastiches. Which are lovely. I mean, absolutely. And, you know, to to have that moment of, gosh, Iron Man sure looked different then. But as far as, like doing work in the Marvel universe, it really doesn't doesn't do a whole lot. It's mm. not it's not doing any plot work. It's definitely not doing any plot work, but uh, I don't think it needs to. I think it's just a little romp. So where you've done the reading now, so you can tell me, in the course of Doom, okay. by this point, 
had Latveria been mentioned anywhere at all? Latveria had not been mentioned. Latveria is not mentioned uh, for a few stories yet. Latveria is first mentioned in Fantastic Four Annual Number 2, mm-hmm. at which point it becomes a great big thing. It's not like we're going to drop a few words about Latveria and then gradually spin out more and more about it. It is a Latverian info dump. When we get to that episode, you will hear it for sure. Mm-hmm. At the moment, it's just... Here's the international terrorist you know and love. He's got a metal mask. He's got spheres that can transport you to another dimension. He likes robots a whole lot. And he's got a grudge. Against superheroes. Against superheroes, but mostly against Reed Richards, about whom he really doesn't speak in this issue. It's just he talks about he wants revenge and he wants conquest. What does he want revenge for? What does he want to conquer and why? We don't know yet. And this is not going to tell us, because none of the other stories around it had told us. But he's going somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Katie Pride, thank you so much again for joining us. Next week, I'll be talking about the X-Men and Doctor Doom 1998 annual with special guest Jay Edidin. Meanwhile, if you've got any questions about anything having to do with Doctor Doom, this show, or Latverian culture in general that you'd like us to answer on the show, the address to email them to is faithfulretainerboris at voiceoflotveria.com. The Voice of Latveria podcast is made possible by the patronage of listeners like you. If you support us through patreon.com slash douglaswolk, you'll get access to our private book club and discussion board for Marvel nerds, the 616 Society. You can find out more about this podcast on our website, voiceoflotveria.com, and follow us on Twitter. This is Douglas Wolk for the VOL. Zero, zero, seven. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero, zero, seven. This is June Carpa for the VOL tomorrow on Touring Transia. I'll be reporting back on my journey to the foothills of Mount Wandergore, and I'll try to separate myth from reality. Is the demonic elder god Cthon really bound to the mountain? Yes, indeed. Can the mountain's evil be felt within its clay? Of course it can, and it can even be used to manipulate human wills. And do the Knights of Wondergore include a pig man called Sir Porger, a rat woman called Lady Vermin and a dog man called Lord Johnson? Ha ha ha, not exactly. I got to the bottom of that rumor, and the dog man is actually Lord Churchill. That's tomorrow on Touring Transia, here on Voice of Latveria. This concludes our broadcast day. May Doom's terrifying face inspire you to devotedly implement his policies until you die. (laughs) 